How many of you this morning like milk? Raise your hand. Some of you do, and I've heard people say they hate milk. I knew a preacher that actually drank a gallon of milk a day. One gallon of milk a day. Now, many of you remember these milk cartons. If you'll look at the screen, you'll see these old milk cartons. They would put on the back of them missing children. And typically, they would list the characteristics of the child that is missing. They talk about the eye color, the hair, the height, and where they were from. And the purpose of that was to help people identify this possible missing child. Well, that's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, is Paul is going to give us some of the characteristics of false teachers because he wants to help us understand how to identify false teachers in our day and time. So turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you know, we're working our way through this particular book. For those of you who are visiting, one of the things we do at Calvary Chapel is we go book by book, chapter by chapter, and we're fast winding down this particular epistle of Paul. Now, as John has said in previous weeks, one of the problems that uh, the Corinthians were dealing with was the issue of false teachers. Wherever Paul went and established churches, false teachers would typically dog his steps, and they were undermine his apostolic authority. And in Corinth, one of the things that they were doing is saying that Paul is not a genuine apostle, and they were attacking him. They said he didn't have letters of recommendation, his resume was anemic, they said he's unimpressive in his appearance, he's unimpressive in his speech, he doesn't engage in polished speech, and on and on they went, and they attacked Paul's character. And what they did was they wanted to dissuade the Corinthians from following the Apostle Paul, and they wanted them to follow themselves as false teachers. And so what Paul has to do is he has to defend his apostleship in this particular epistle. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of false teachers because the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 made it very clear that in the last days, there would be a plethora of false teachers that would occupy because Satan is the father of lies and he likes to sow seeds of error. Notice what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, we're living in the last days. And he's saying here that people are going to turn away from Christianity. They're going to turn away from Christ, even people in the church that purport to be saved. And notice, Satan always uses emissaries. And in verse 2, he says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Those are false teachers whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. In other words, they can do what they do because they really have no conscience. They've seared their conscience. And so the Bible warns us, not only in the Apostle Paul's day, but in our day and time today, there's going to be a bevy of false teachers that are going to sow lies and deception because Satan's ultimate goal is to lead people to hell, and his ultimate goal in the life of a Christian is to derail you spiritually. Because if Satan can't get at your soul, if you're a born-again Christian, he's going to change his tactics, and what he's going to do is work through false teachers in order to get you off track spiritually. 
And so what Paul does here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is he gives us sort of a milk carton characteristic of false teachers. Let me share with you five of them this morning real briefly. Obviously, this is not exhaustive. If you want to look at Jude, if you want to look at 2 Peter, you can get a more exhaustive list of what are false teachers like. But the first characteristic Paul gives us of false teachers is they lead you away from your relationship or devotion to Christ. Notice what he says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. In other words, you've been bearing with me thus far in this epistle. He says, I'm asking you to bear with me just a little bit more. He says in verse 2, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that Christ, I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity, here it is, of devotion to Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul here uses an analogy from marriage, and he basically sees himself as a father and the Corinthian church as his daughter. Now, you have to understand Jewish weddings back in that day. Often marriages were arranged, and there were two phases to a Jewish wedding. There was um, the betrothal, and then there was what was called the nuptial. We understand that today because people sign a what? Prenuptial agreement. Well, in that day, they had two phases. They had the betrothal, which is sort of like our engagement today, and then they finally had the wedding ceremony, which was the nuptial. Now, Paul here focuses in on that first phase of marriage in Jewish culture, and that was the betrothal phase. And during that time period, you were considered legally married, but you did not live together. You did not have physical relations together. And during that time period, you were apart. The husband would prepare the house. There would be a dowry, dowry and all that other stuff would take place. Now, it was during that betrothal period that you were tested. And the question is, would both partners be faithful to one another? In fact, this is what Joseph and Mary were going through in Matthew chapter 1. Do you remember during that betrothal period, Joseph thought Mary was unfaithful because she was pregnant, and Joseph, said, it says in Matthew 1, was going to divorce her quietly. See, it was legally binding. And so Paul says this to the Corinthians, I view you Corinthians as sort of my daughter, and I'm your father. And I've betrothed you to Christ. And during that betrothal period, what he wanted from the Corinthian Christians is that they would be pure and they would be faithful and they would be devoted to Jesus Christ. In other words, he didn't want them to be led astray and commit spiritual adultery as it was. And he says, but I'm afraid that just as Satan led Eve astray in the garden through deception, he's saying that's exactly what's happening to you. These false teachers are leading you astray. Rather than being devoted to Christ and not committing spiritual adultery on Christ, he says you're being led astray in your minds by listening to these false teachers. And so one of the characteristics of false teachers, mark it down, is they're not devoted to Christ. They're devoted to their institution. They're devoted to their ego. They're devoted to people following them rather than being devoted to Jesus Christ. This is always the characteristic of false teachers, and it's very, very subtle. In fact, there's a man by the name, you'll notice him on the screen, his name is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman 
grew up in a Christian home. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He studied conservative theology. And when he got done at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, he actually went to Princeton Seminary, which is in New Jersey. Now, Princeton Seminary started off as a very conservative seminary. Jonathan Edwards was the first president. He died. And then over time, Princeton Seminary became liberal. And what happened was they began to teach error. And so Bart Ehrman went to this particular school, and while he was there, he was instructed to write a paper on Mark chapter 2. And when he wrote, trying to explain this controversial passage in Mark chapter 2, he got his paper back from the professor, and the professor wrote on his paper, how about this, Bart? Maybe Mark got it wrong. In other words, the professor was saying, Mark got it wrong, and he wasn't inspired when he wrote. And Bart Ehrman said that pierced him to the heart, and that began his journey of investigating whether or not the Bible is reliable. And now he's an apostate. He teaches at North Carolina University, and I'm going to tell you this, he has damaged a lot of people's faith. He's a very smart man. He's a very brilliant man. I just recently watched a debate with him and Dan Wallace, who's the top Greek scholar around the world, and they debated the reliability of the New Testament documents. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, and he talks about how many errors there are in the Bible. And as I debate people online, sometimes they'll bring up this man and they'll say to me, have you read Bart Erdman? As if to say, I follow Bart Erdman, he's a scholar and you're not. And you see, what false teachers do is they lead people astray. People that are investigating the claims of Christ who are not Christians, it can turn them away from becoming a born-again Christian. But make no mistake about it, false teachers can also get Christians to start doubting the Bible, to start doubting God. And let me tell you what happens when you begin to doubt the veracity of God's word, you're not going to follow Christ lock, stock, and barrel. You're not going to present yourself as a living sacrifice. And the reason why is because you will never give yourself to someone you don't trust. If you don't trust your spouse because your spouse is unfaithful to you, do you think you're going to give yourself to them fully? No, because you don't trust them. And so we got to understand that one of the characteristics of false teachers is if you sit under their teaching and you're not careful and you get into bad doctrine, what happens over time is it begins to erode at your spiritual faith and you begin to be plagued with doubts. And before long, you'll begin to disengage. I had a friend in high school. Actually, he was my Bible teacher. And later on, he was my colleague because I went back to the high school that I went to to teach Bible to ninth and 10th graders. He told me that his sister went to Harvard school and she went to the seminary department. And she said after a semester, she had to get out. She said, because they were denying the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And she said, I cannot sit under that teaching because over time, these high powered false teachers will get you to question the validity of God's word. And by the way, it may not just be false teachers. There's a lot of things that can pull us away from our devotion to Jesus Christ. Yes, false teachers do that. But for most of us here, you have been well taught by John. So I would venture to say that most of you here probably are not going to get sucked into error. But if we're not careful as Christians, it's not the false teachers. It's often our jobs. Even our families, as good as our families are, we can make an idol out of our family. It could be the internet. It could be an addiction. It could be something in your life that's pulling you away from your devotion to Christ. And Paul says, look, 
Corinthians, you are my daughter. I have betrothed you to Christ, and I don't want you to be committing spiritual adultery on Christ. I want you to be devoted to him fully. And so let me ask you a question this morning. Are you committing spiritual adultery on Jesus? Are you shacking up with another lover? Who's that lover? Is it things? You say, Mike, I would never do that. Well, we all have to examine our hearts because it's very easy and very subtly to get moved away from our devotion to Christ, not necessarily the local church. We may be devoted to the local church, and you know what? We're not really devoted to Christ. You could be a Sunday Christian who comes faithfully and never misses, and you're not really devoted to Christ. You're devoted more just in the habit of coming to church. And so be careful of that. And understand that false teachers lead us astray in that sense. Well, there's a second characteristic of false teachers, and that is false teachers preach another Jesus and another gospel. False teachers preach another Jesus and another gospel. Notice, if you will, verses 4 through 6. He says to the Corinthians, and he's somewhat being pejorative here. He's kind of being sarcastic. He says, for if one comes and preaches... And here's the key, another Jesus. See, Paul gave them the true Jesus. He says, if someone preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, a spirit of legalism, because typically that's what the false teachers would do, which you have not received from us, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You see, false teachers were coming into Corinth, and what they were doing is they were contradicting Paul's message. They were contradicting the gospel that Paul had given them, and they were contradicting the Jesus that Paul had explained to them. And there are two ways to identify in this text right here whether or not a person is a false teacher or not. There's a lot of things, but listen, to make it simple for you, these are two things guaranteed you could tell whether a person is a true teacher or a true representative of God or a false teacher. Paul lists them here. The first thing is you need to ask, what do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about Jesus? See, they were preaching another Jesus. And typically you will find with all false teachers, all false religious systems or all cults, they inevitably distort the person of Jesus Christ. They have a jaded Christology about who Jesus is. And For most, it's usually they demote him as not being fully God. We know this with the Jehovah Witnesses. We know this with other people as well, the Mormons. In fact, yesterday we went door to door, and this young girl opened the door, and she invited us in, and we were waiting there probably for five minutes, and we were waiting for the mother to come downstairs. And I thought, man, you know, we could have, if we were bad intent, we could have robbed this house, and the people wouldn't have known. But there we were sitting, and the mother comes down pregnant. And then we start talking to her. We said, hey, we're here to pray for the community. Then her husband comes around the corner. And I said, hey, we're here to bless the community. We just want to pray for you. He says, hey, I'm a Mormon. And so I said, okay. So we began to talk. I began to dialogue with him. I was very gracious with him. But I explained to him that the Mormons preach another Jesus. And that's the problem. And so you have to ask the question, what do they believe about Jesus? Do you remember that interview years ago where... Uh, what's his name? Uh, go up on the screen here. Show the picture. There he is right there. Uh, Joel Osteen and uh, what's his name? Larry King. I had a brain freeze there. Larry King. He was actually interviewing Joel Osteen, and this was the time when Mitt Romney was actually running for president. 
And Larry King asked Joel Osteen, he said, well, what do you think about Mitt Romney? And Joel Osteen said, well, he believes in Jesus, and so that's good enough for me. Well, the problem with what Joel Osteen was saying is that the Mormons, which Mitt Romney identified with, they preach another Jesus. And so always ask people, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Is he the God-man? Is he virgin-born? Is he sinless? That's the first test. And then Paul here gives a second test, not only who is Jesus, but what do they believe about salvation? What do they believe about salvation? He says they not only preach another Jesus, but he says in this text, they also preach another gospel. And you know what Galatians chapter 1 says, that if anyone preaches another gospel other than the one Paul gave, he said, let them be cursed. Now, Paul doesn't mince any words. Today in our culture, even in the church culture today of tolerance, and obviously we want to be loving, we want to be gracious, but when it comes to who Jesus is and, who the, and the gospel message, we are not to be tolerant. We're to be gracious, but we are not to compromise these two areas of theology because they're clearly taught in Scripture. And you see, too, too many Christians want to negotiate the gospel away, and we cannot do that. And so the question you have to ask is, what do they believe about salvation? Do they believe it's by faith alone? In fact, notice this chart up on the screen. This will help explain it to some of you. Here are the different views of how to be saved. When you encounter people, here's what you're going to encounter. There are people that basically say you can earn your way to heaven. So your works equals salvation. Uh, we all know that that's not correct. Now, this middle one is the one that's often deceptive. And this is the one that you will often deal with the cults on and the false religious systems. They say it's faith plus your works equals salvation. JWs, Mormons, even the Catholic Church holds to the middle one. Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says it's faith alone. That leads to salvation plus good works. See the difference here? It's faith plus works equals salvation. It's in this one, it's not to God be the glory, it's to us be the glory. Here, it's faith alone. We trust in Christ, and that leads to my salvation. And if it's true salvation, it's going to produce what? Good works. That's why if a person says they believe in Jesus Christ, but you don't see evidence in their life, you have to question whether or not their faith in Christ is genuine. And so typically, the cults will talk about faith and works. That's what they do. I remember years ago when I was living in Miami, it was Christmas morning, and we heard a knock at the door. Came to the door, and I knew right away it was JWs. So I opened the door, and I went outside, and I began to engage them in a discussion. And we talked about who Jesus is. I explained that Jesus is God of very gods. He's not a created being. And I said, look, your heresy goes all the way back to the Council of Nicaea in 325 when they condemned Arius, who was a church father, who said that Jesus was God's first created being. So I said, you're just repackaging that heresy. And I said, furthermore, the Bible says you're saved by faith alone and not by works. And he argued with me and he said, no, no, you got to do works. I said, no, you don't have to do any works to get into heaven. I said, it's faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Titus chapter 3. You don't add anything to the cross of Jesus Christ. I said, however, if you're truly saved by faith alone, it's going to produce good works. You see, good works are not a requirement for salvation. They are a result of salvation. 
And that's what I explained to this particular gentleman, but what happens is we get caught up into this faith plus works. And so typically, false teachers will distort two things. They will distort the person of Christ and the gospel message. And so these are two litmus tests that you can use whenever you listen to somebody on TV, whenever you read a book, whether you go to another church and you sit under their teaching, you need to ask these two questions. What do they believe about Jesus and what do they believe about how to be saved? Now, typically, if they distort those two things, usually they have bad theology in other areas as well. Now, you may affirm one of those and deny the other. For example, and I say this in a spirit of love, because I know there are brothers and sisters within the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying that everybody in Roman Catholicism is not saved. But by and large, Roman Catholicism is not a church. It's a building. It has a form of godliness with no power because any system that preaches a false gospel is not a church. And you see, Roman Catholicism holds to an orthodox view of Jesus. They believe he's fully God and fully man. And so we would say amen with them on that one. But when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, faith alone in Jesus Christ is not enough. You must believe and you must keep the sacraments in order to be saved. And if you don't keep the sacraments, what happens is you commit a mortal sin, a mortal sin causes you to lose your salvation, and then you have to gain that salvation back through penance and the whole system that they've devised. You see, that's a false gospel. Well, there's a third characteristic of false teachers, and that is this. They are motivated by greed. They are motivated by greed. Notice what he says in verses 5 through 11. He says, for I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now, obviously, Paul here was being attacked. And they were criticizing Paul, saying he's not a genuine apostle. And he says to the Corinthians, look, I'm not inferior to these false apostles. Because what were they saying about Paul? He lacks personal persona. Paul doesn't speak well. And then he says in verse 6, but even if I'm an unskilled in speech. In other words, even if I'm an amateur in my speaking, yet I am not so in knowledge. I gave you the truth. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Paul says, look, I may not be an eloquent speaker, but I've given you the truth of God's word, and you know that. In verse 7, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows that I do. Now, you have to understand the background here. Paul in Corinth was dealing with a Greek culture. Now, one of the things that the Greeks put an emphasis on was rhetoric. They put an emphasis on eloquence. They put an, uh, an emphasis on speech and how gifted you were at speaking. And here's one of the things that the Greeks did. If you were a great speaker, you would charge a hefty fee. And so your worth was determined by how much you charged. If you charged a lot, that probably meant that you were a gifted communicator. 
And so here comes Paul into Corinth. He establishes the church. And what Paul does is he doesn't charge the Corinthians. He doesn't take financial support from them. Instead, what he says in this passage is, I worked. And we know from looking at the book of Acts, he worked as a tent maker. And it's not that Paul couldn't have gotten support from the Corinthians, because if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I have a right to receive support. He says, I have a right to be supported by the gospel. But he says, I've chosen to give up that right and not gain support from you Corinthians, but I've chosen to work with my own hands because he wanted to undercut the false teachers in Corinth. He did not want to be associated with them, and he didn't want to be lumped in with these charlatans and be seen as one who is preaching a message of greed. And so that's the background behind here. Many of these false teachers, they would charge the Corinthians. And what they were saying to the Corinthians is, Paul doesn't love you because Paul's not taking support from you. If Paul really loved you and he really saw himself as one of God's representatives, as a gifted speaker, he would actually take support from you because that's what the Greek culture did. But Paul went countercultural and he said, no, the reason why I'm not charging you is not because I don't love you. He says, man, I do love you, but I don't want to be associated with these charlatans. And you see, this is one of the characteristics of false teachers is they are disciples of dough. They are motivated by money. In fact, Paul says it very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says they think godliness is a means to financial gain. And especially today with social media, with television and radio, you and I know there is an abundance of false teachers out there that are preaching this prosperity message. Now, I think some of them are probably genuine, but they've bought into a bad message. But many of them disguise themselves as true representatives of God, and they're really not preaching the gospel message. Most of them, if you listen to them, you will never hear a clear gospel presentation at the end. They never talk about repentance. They never talk about following Jesus and giving up everything to follow him. Typically, what they do is they promote their gospel of greed, and they say God wants everybody healthy and wealthy. There was a cult that developed in the South Pacific Islands. It's called the cargo cults. Some of you probably have never heard of this, but when you get into the area of Northern Australia, Papua New Guinea, and you get into the South Pacific Island, during World War II, the Allied forces went to these particular areas, and what they did was they went in and they bulldozed a lot of trees, and they would, they would create landing strips for their planes. And what they would do is they would come in and they would deliver their cargo in these particular areas in order to distribute them to a lot of the naval ships during World War II. Well, there were a lot of people, aboriginal people, that were not exposed to modern civilization, at least back in the 40s. And so when they saw these planes and they saw these landing strips and they saw all this cargo, they thought that the gods had come down and delivered them all this stuff. And so what they did was they developed a cult. They developed a false religion. It's still in existence today. It's called the cargo cults of the South Pacific Islands. Here is what one particular person said about these particular cargo cults. You'll notice the quote up on the screen. Island natives saw cigarette lighters produce fire instantly and believed it to be miraculous. They saw large machinery push aside whole forests to build airstrips. 
They saw for the first time jeeps and modern weaponry and refrigerators and radios, power tools and many varieties of food that they couldn't even comprehend. Of course, they were fascinated by all of that, and they concluded that the white men must be gods. So when the war was over and all the armies were gone, tribesmen built shrines to the cargo gods. Their tabernacles are perfect replicas of cargo planes, control towers, airplane hangars, all made of bamboo and woven material. And they look essentially like the real thing, but they were non-functional except to act as temples for the worship of the cargo gods. On some of the more remote islands, these cults are still thriving today. Some have personified all Americans into one deity whom they have named Tom Navy. They pray for more holy cargo from every airplane that flies over, and they venerate religious relics such as Zippo lighters, cameras, eyeglasses, ballpoint pens, nuts and bolts, and so on, end quote. In fact, look at these two pictures up here. You'll notice the cargo coats right here. See the planes right here? Bamboo pole. They actually worship. They, here, here are some of the goggles here. Go to the next slide. You'll see here they dress up. They have some of the modern stuff that we brought there. The cargo cults of the South Pacific. Do you realize the cargo cults are still around today? It's called the prosperity gospel. And what they're doing is they're giving us the cargo. It's not Jesus. They're using Jesus as a front, but really it's a gospel of greed. And so the cargo cults still exist today. And so when you're evaluating whether someone's a true representative of God or not, you need to ask this question. Is it about money for them? And you know, Calvary Chapel, we don't place an emphasis on money, and there's nothing wrong with teaching about money. Jesus taught about money second to the doctrine of hell. Those were his two prominent topics was hell and money. So we're not saying money's bad. It's a stewardship. And there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with being blessed. But when you make that the central focus of your message, there's a problem. Well, there's a fourth characteristic of false teachers, and that is this. They are deceptive. They are deceptive. Notice what he says in verses 12 through 15. He says in verse 12, but what I am doing, not charging, he says, I will continue to do that. He says, I'm not giving up that conviction. And by the way, Paul did take support from other churches. He said that, I plundered other churches. Other churches supported him even though he was poor, even though they were poor. They supported Paul, and Paul says, I took support from other churches. He says, but I'm not going to give up this conviction here in Corinth because I don't want to be lumped with those charlatans. He says, I, he says, but what I'm doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be guarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. And look what he says about these false apostles in Corinth. For such men, Paul here is not seeker-friendly. He says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Notice he uses the word deception, disguise. He uses it four times in this particular text. False teachers are deceptive. Notice what Jude chapter 4 says, or verse 4. He says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. That's what he says about false teachers. 
They operate in a clandestine manner. They're very secretive. And let me tell you this. Here's where the deception comes. It's not that they stand up and say, hey, I'm preaching error to you. That's not the deception. Because we know that Satan is an angel of light. And what that means is Satan mixes enough truth with enough error in order to deceive people. That's exactly what he does. In fact, I was thinking about this several weeks ago. My dog kept itching, and you know, I finally looked under his belly, and he had all of these sores. And so I thought, all right, I got to get him to the vet. So I took him to the vet, and she said, yeah, we've been seeing this all year, these infections. She said, uh, let me go ahead and give you an antibiotic. And you'll notice on the screen, she gave me this antibiotic, and she said, give this to the dog. Well, you and I know that dogs typically don't like to take antibiotics, do they? I mean, you have to pry their mouth open, you have to put it all the way down, you have to close their mouth and force them to swallow it. Well, I didn't want to be that cruel to my dog. So I came up with an ingenious plan. My daughter brought home, the next slide, Dunkin' Donuts. And so I thought to myself, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a little bit deceptive to make this more palatable. And so I took the antibiotic and I took one of those little cream donuts. I took a little bit of piece off of it and I put it right inside the cream. And when I gave it to him, man, it went right down the gullet. And ever since then, I've been doing it. He's still on the antibiotics. I'll take a piece of chicken. I'll put it in the chicken and I'll give him the chicken and he swallows it. You see, it's very deceptive. And that's exactly what false teachers do is basically they try to give you error. But what they do is they mix enough truth with it in order to deceive you. And that's why it's so critical you and I are discerning and that we're in the word of God, that we know the word of God. We know the truth. Because if not, false teachers will pull us astray. In fact, Jude verse 12 says this up on the screen, speaking of false teachers, these are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Now, in that day, they had love feasts, they had potlucks, you know, after service, they would get together and they would engage in these potluck lunches or dinners. And what they would do is have communion and so these false teachers would show up to these love feasts, but they would show up unnoticed. They were very clandestine. They didn't let you know that they were false teachers. And he says here in Jude chapter 12, they are hidden reefs. Why does he use that term? Because a reef is something that a person doesn't see when they're on a boat or a cruise ship. And what happens is it ends up running your boat aground. In fact, this happened, if you'll notice the screen right here, this particular gentleman right here, this is a real picture of a real cruise ship right here that ran into a reef. His name is Francesco Chinito, and the ship is called Costa Concordia, and he was out in the Italian islands, and he basically was bragging about what kind of captain he was to a female person. And he said, let me show you how close I can get to this island so that people can get a view. Well, he didn't realize that there was a hidden reef there. And what happened is he ran into the reef and you see the results of what happened. 32 people died in this particular accident. He's in jail right now for 16 years because of this particular event. And you see, false teachers are very deceptive. They mix enough truth with enough error in order to make it palatable. And that's why it's critical that you don't just rely on what you're hearing here Sunday morning, but that you're in the Word of God yourself. You're reading other Christian books. You're getting grounded in basic Bible doctrine. Now, let me say this. 
Just because a person disagrees with you over a secondary doctrine doesn't mean they're a false teacher. You want to be careful with that. If I disagree with a brother or sister in Christ over the different views of the rapture or different modes of baptism, or did God choose me or did I choose God, or is tongues for today or is it not for today, we may have some intramural debates with other Christians. It doesn't mean that if we disagree with them, they're false teachers. In fact, you can teach a false doctrine and still be a true teacher. Now, I'm not agreeing with the false doctrine, but sometimes pastors can get into areas that they shouldn't get in. It doesn't mean they're false teachers. But all false teachers will teach false doctrine. And typically, they distort, what are the two? The doctrine of Jesus Christ and the work of salvation. Well, there's one final principle for this morning on how to identify false teachers, and that is this. False teachers are driven by pride and worldly standards. False teachers are driven by pride and worldly standards. Now, let me again give you the background here because this section is real long and I'm just going to read it to you. And once I explain it, you'll understand what Paul is getting at. The false teachers in Corinth boasted about their credentials. They boasted about their eloquence. They boasted about their letters of recommendation. And here's what they said against Paul. Paul is not qualified to be an apostle. He doesn't have letters of recommendation like we have. He's not eloquent. His presence is unimpressive. He can't speak. They went on and on and on attacking his character. You say, well, why would they do this, Mike? Watch this. If you attack the man, you attack the message. You see, if I can undermine you as a person, I can undermine the message that you're preaching. And so they boasted constantly about who they were. They were driven by pride, and their boasting was often based on worldly standards. And so Paul says, okay, you guys are boasting. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a little boasting myself. Now, Paul despised this. He didn't want to do it. He realized he was acting like a fool. But in order to win the affection of the Corinthians and win them back from the influence of the false teachers, Paul says, okay, you want me to boast about my credentials? I'm going to act like a fool right now, and I'm going to boast and let you Corinthians know what my resume is like, what my credentials are. And by the way, when Paul boasted, he boasted about his weaknesses. He didn't boast about all of his accomplishments. He boasted about his weaknesses. So with that in mind, now watch as we read the passage. He says this, beginning in verse 16. And I'm going to put this in the NIV because the NIV, I think, says it clearly. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. In other words, I'm, I'm not a fool, but I'm about to act like one. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. He's saying, look, I'm going to act like a fool here because I'm going to engage in braggadocia right now. In verse 17, in this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many, that's the false teachers, are boasting, here it is, in the way the world does, he says, I'm going to stoop down to their level and I'm going to boast too. What does Proverbs chapter 24 say? It says, answer a fool according to his folly. And Paul is about to do that. Notice verse 19. He says, sarcastically, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Remember, sarcasm is intended to communicate the opposite. In fact, verse 20, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, exploits you, or takes advantage of you, 
or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. In other words, Paul is saying, stop putting up with these false teachers. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. And then he says, whatever anyone dares to boast about, and then he qualifies it, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Now here's his boasting right here. Are they Hebrews, ethnically and linguistically? So am I. Are they Israelites? Are they descended from Abraham? So am I. By the way, when he says, so am I, he says that, I think, three or four times, and he's saying, look, I'm equal to them. He says, are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And then he puts in parentheses, I'm out of my mind to talk like this because Paul would never do this. He says, I am more. Now, here's where he departs. He says, so am I, so am I, so am I. I'm equal with them, but now what I'm about to tell you, I exceed them. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Anybody want to sign up for this ministry? Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I mean, this is the $6 million apostle. Verse 27, I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. By the way, a false teacher would not sign up for this. Why? Because he's in it for his own self-aggrandizement. He's in it for money. He's in it for his own ego. No one would suffer like this if they weren't a true representative of God. He says, verse 29, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? You see, Paul loved the church. He didn't make merchandise out of the church like the false apostles. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my, say it out loud, weaknesses, unlike the false teachers. And he says, you want an example of how weak I am? The God and Father, verse 31 of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, and he was the king of the Nabataeans there in Arabia where Paul went for three years, had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. Here's Paul in his weakness. Thereafter, his life, after his conversion, he went into Arabia, he was trained, then he went back to Damascus, he started preaching, and there was the Gentiles, the Arabians that lived in Damascus, and then there were the Jews. They were plotting against his life, and they barred the city. And so Paul says in verse 33, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. You see, Paul contrasts himself here with the false teachers, and he basically says, they're into braggadocia, they're into pride, they're into ego, they're into their worldly accomplishments. He says, on the other hand, he says, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. I'm going to boast in the fact that I serve Jesus Christ sacrificially. And listen, this was distasteful to Paul. He did not want to boast like this, but he did it in order to win the affection of the Corinthians to show that he was on equal playing ground with them and even more. 
And so we learn from this, one of the characteristics of false teachers is they are driven by pride, ego, and worldly standards. As we close, I remember years ago I went to the Keys. Maybe some of you have been to this area here. Island Morada. You guys ever been there before? Here's a picture of it right here. Uh, some of you now are going, why aren't I there? Why aren't I there? But you see how pretty, well, we went fishing one day out on the reef here in that area, and one of the things that I caught, you'll notice the next slide here, is uh, leave it here for a second. Does anybody know what these fish are? They're called puffer fish, blowfish. By the way, you can eat these, but you have to cut them correctly because they have poison in them. And if you go to Japan, they've taken the poison parts and they've thrown them into dumpsters and homeless people will eat them and die. And so I reeled one of these in. It was either me or one of my friends when we were fishing, and here's what it looked like. As soon as it got in the boat and the guy touched it, the thing began to inflate. It began to blow up. I mean, it's, it's kind of like they're small, and then all of a sudden, they just get inflated with this air, and that's why they call them puffer fishes. Well, that's exactly what the Corinthian false teachers were. They were puffer fish. They were, they were filled with pride. They were filled with their own ego, and typically, you will find with false teachers, listen to their message. Listen to what they say. It's all about them. Jesus said this as I close. He defined the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, and here's what he said about them, speaking of their pride and their worldly standards. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassel of their garments. You see, it's all about, it's all about persona. They love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues. It's all about their ego. They want to be respectfully greeted in the marketplaces, and they want to be called rabbi. People sometimes ask me and John, I've had this experience, what should you call? What should I call you? I say, call me Mike. Call John, John. We're not into pastor. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to call us pastor, but we're not into titles. You will typically find that false preachers are driven by titles. But notice the contrast here in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew 23. Jesus said this, but the greatest among you shall be your what? Servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be what? Exalted. And so what have we learned about the characteristic of false teachers this morning? Again, not an exhaustive list. You want to read 2 Peter and Jude, but here it is right here in summary. False teachers lead you away from your relationship to Christ. They preach another Jesus, another gospel. False teachers are motivated by greed. They are deceptive. And the last one is what? They are driven by pride, ego, and outward show of success. And so I want to encourage us all, be men and women of the word. You're well taught here, but you need to be in the word of God yourself. One book I would recommend in addition to the Bible, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. 30 Days to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. Great book. It gives you an overview of the Bible. And then in the back, it gives you all of the major doctrines. And listen, it breaks it down for guys like me. In fact, they have, a, they have a book called Bible for Dummies. You ever seen it before? It's a great book, but get that book, and it will help you in addition to your reading of the Bible. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for warning us. Lord, and we know that there are many wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. And Lord, you call the church to be discerning. We have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us to give us discernment, 
But Lord, we're also called to be students of your word. We're to rightly divide the word. And Lord, help us in this day of time. There is so much error being propagated in social media, television, radio, book. Help us to be discerning. Help us to be careful who we listen to, who we sit under, what books we read. And Lord, not only for our own faith, but as Titus says, we are to encourage others in sound doctrine, Lord, so that we can defend the faith. It's not enough for us to know the faith. Your word says we're called to defend the faith so that we can instruct others in solid doctrine. God, strengthen us in Jesus' name.